Good afternoon, good evening, whenever or wherever in the world you're tuning in from. My name is David Nash and together we're celebrating 10 years of UNFD, a cornerstone of Australia's heavy music scene by diving deep into the stories behind just some of the records that made the label what it is today. In case you haven't already gotten amongst it, throughout 2021, the legends at UNFD have been re-releasing some of the classic records from the back catalogue on limited edition collector's vinyl. So far, the collection has given us classic albums and EPs from local legends like In Hearts Wake, Hellions, Dream on Dreamer and Thornhill, as well as international icons like Stray from the Path and Dream State. For the almighty eighth instalment, we're heading to UNFD's very own batting grounds of Melbourne, where one band in particular reignited Australia's love for new metal by channeling the spirit of old school mainstays like Limp Biscuit and Corn, but shaking it up with their own scratchy, mosh ready flair. I'm talking, of course, about the Titans in Ocean Grove. The band are named after a quaint and relaxing seaside town in the Bellarine Peninsula, about 25 minutes south of Geelong. But if you've ever heard Ocean Grove's music, and because you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to assume you have, you'll know that Ocean Grove themselves are anything but quaint and relaxing. The band had quite a decent following in the years prior to their 2017 full-length debut, The Rhapsody Tapes. Not the hugest fan base in Australia's heavy music scene, the blokes themselves will admit, but certainly one of the most dedicated, most passionate, and most willing to fuck shit up on a wild night out. But when Ocean Grove released the Rhapsody tapes on February 3rd, 2017, just a few weeks after their explosive showcase at the Unify Gathering, well, to say their world changed would be the understatement of the century. The Rhapsody tapes didn't just put Ocean Grove on the map, it started a revolution in Australia's legion of bands that embrace the weird and wonderful in equal measures. It's a kaleidoscopic roller coaster ride through all the peaks and valleys of music's most unpredictable minds, fueled by the unforgiven wackiness of three joke cracking, cone punching teenagers from the outskirts of Melbourne. No two songs in the album even sound slightly alike, from the grinding intensity of beers to the dizzying, grungy strums of the wrong way, all the way to the sweaty, synth-powered haze of slow soap soak. And that's only looking at the first half of the album. No wonder it scored perfect reviews from publications like Hysteria and Kill Your Stereo and became the coveted Triple J feature album for the week of its release. The band's upbringing had a lot to do with their willingness to break free from the shackles of genre. They were outsiders from the get-go hailing from a part of Melbourne where the scene presence was minimal and heavy bands weren't really a part of the culture in their schoolyard circles. Not to mention, they were wide-eyed 16- and 17-year-olds trying to break into a scene powered by weathered blokes in their late 30s. But that's where the boys in Ocean Grove used their youthfulness to their advantage. They realised pretty quickly that they could get away with doing more wild shit simply because they were young. And they had technology on their side, with their adolescence timed perfectly with the evolution of things like GarageBand and file sharing. Ocean Grove took full advantage of the sonic matrix at their disposal, with the core of the operation lying in the hands of one Mr. Sam Basal, 
Sam plays drums in the band when they're on stage, but he's also their main songwriter and producer behind the scenes. The story goes that Sam would hash out a rough idea for a song using his technological prowess to scribble up one hell of a sketch, then whip it over to the boys for their input. That way, they could jump straight into the room and hash out a full, fat masterpiece whenever they next convened. It's worth noting, too, that Sam was only 15 when he joined Ocean Grove, the same year they put out their debut EP. His dad was also their personal roadie on more than one occasion, driving Sam and the boys to more of their own shows than Sam would be willing to admit. To write for the Rhapsody tapes, Ocean Grove looked to the world around them. Hitashi, for example, was written by Running Touch, the band's former guitarist and current studio member, in his old apartment above the Mentone train station, listening to his ceiling fans rumble as the trains run by. One song in particular, Mr. Centipede, came to life in a particularly interesting fashion. It had no grandiose, pretentious origin story. Dale wasn't walking down the street when a businessman in a $1,000 suit stepped on a centipede and thought to himself, well, what if centipede was the gentleman in this scenario? It was just a funny little phrase. One of the Grovers had whipped up on the spot, ad-libbing lyrics on a whiteboard in their rehearsal space. And yet Mr. Centipede would go on to become one of the songs from the Rhapsody tapes that truly stood the test of time and is still today one of their most popular songs. Thunderdome and Mr. Centipede were the two songs that really formed the direction that Ocean Grove decided they wanted to head in for the Rhapsody tapes. Their aim was to establish an identity to create something that only Ocean Grove could. A Rhapsody, sure but also a manifesto, a handbook that welcomed listeners to the downright wild life and times of those that thrived in the odd world. Ocean Grove had only 28 days to record, mix, and master the whole thing, and they did it all in the home of Sam's parents over in Melton. One particularly formative moment in the process was when Dale heard the first demo for Thunderdome That was the moment he knew the band had the markings of a killer album set in place. Just months after the Rhapsody tapes came out, Ocean Grove found themselves on tour with the undisputed kings of new metal themselves, Limp Biscuit. The biz had played a huge role in the sound and style that Ocean Grove cut their teeth on. The wonderfully fucked up aesthetics of West Ball and set the tone for what Ocean Grove would go on to build with their own unique stylized flair. So to have Limp Biscuit themselves go, you know what? These kids are pretty fucking rad. Rad enough to play a couple of shows with us and get our fans hyped up. Words simply cannot describe the elation that Ocean Grove felt. It was all up from there too. Ocean Grove became one of the few heavy bands to have a main stage slot at Splendor in the Grass. They broke out into Europe and the US. And although Luke would leave the band a little while after it came out, the Rhapsody tapes paved the way for Dale to step up to that frontman role and crush it without a hiccup. So now that we've touched on why the Rhapsody tapes are so special, let's catch up with Dale and Sam to learn a little more about the mind-blowing story behind it. It is now time to meet our guests on this podcast. Would you please introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm Sam. Uh, I am the main songwriter and producer in the band, but on a live sense, I'm the drummer. And g'day, I am Dale. I am the frontman vocalist of Ocean Grove. And uh, for this record in particular, I was actually bassist and vocalist. So we've got a bit of a mixed bag today. 
love a mixed bag and we love picking the lollies out of that mixed bag. Can you remember how old you two were when the first jam sessions or writing sessions occurred for this album? Yes. So I, by the completion of this record, I, I think I was still 19. I was about 19 at the time, um, but definitely could have started writing around the yeah late 18-year-old late phase of my life. Yeah. Is it create a problem <laughs> for a band when you've got band members that have not yet reached legal drinking age or are just <laughs> on the cusp because there are some venues that might not open up to you? Yeah, that was definitely an issue for us like for a few years. I mean, when we first started doing in, like interstate touring especially, uh, with Sam, you were still 16 kind of at the time and so um i definitely for one had to almost take on a bit of a like guardian role when it came to sam it was just like this is this is literally a a child an infant like i need to um kind of oversee everything that's going on because yeah we a lot of the places i I feel like we didn't we always heard stories about other bands where like the underage member would have to like sit out in the foyer playing guitar or you know stupid stuff like that just to make it work i don't think we had never necessarily had to do that because I think back in that day, the sort of the all age type shows were pretty common. So we could kind of get away with a lot of the underage vibe for a whole tour. Um, but, you know, it did come with its with its challenges for sure, especially, you know, another thing was like just last driver's licenses. Like none of us were even able to hire a, a car. You had to be at least 25 to hire a vehicle. So even that was just like me being the oldest, and we'll, you know, 2021 trying to work it out, I just had to buy a ute and kind of just make yeah. it happen but yeah did people take you seriously at that age that's hard to say i mean i guess whether they did or not we were just <laughs> doing our thing and um getting on with it i mean i think i think it it very much was a a test of our character coming from um you know we, we were sort of hence the name of our first ep is called outsider we, i think we very much felt felt like outsiders from the get-go because we came from um you know sort of a different part of melbourne where there wasn't really much of a a scene and came from a school where it wasn't really much of an established thing playing playing in a a heavy you know a heavy music kind of band that wasn't really a done thing so i think in a general sense not necessarily because of our age but just overall i think we were we were sort of stepping into territory that was kind of abstract and weird to everyone that was around us it was more so trying to push through those sort of you know, glances from other people of like, you know, what, what is this? But in terms of an age thing, I think we just took that in our stride as like, oh, we're just young pups. And especially to older bands, we kind of like use that to our advantage where it was yep. like we could kind of get away with, you know, stuffing up on the odd thing because it was like we were, we were so green and it was just like you could get away with it. Did you have to juggle anything in particular, Sam, because you were so young? I will say um, pretty common knowledge from back in the day that my poor father – uh, had attended almost every single Ocean Grove show you could imagine, has been the personal roadie for many, many years. Um, so, yeah, many many of the the record label and, and people higher up will know him by first name basis. And, um, yeah, he was definitely a big part of, of me being able to get around, that's for sure. Do you remember anything about the earlier sessions of Rhapsody Tapes? I do, for sure. I think um, we've always... As a band, we've always written in a different way, I think, to most people where I think maybe the more traditional way would be to kind of jam or 
um, get in a room and try and nut something out. But I think because we've always had technology on our side, we've been able to go about it in a different way. Um, so I think since I entered the band, it was very much like I had the ability to record demos and, and produce. So it was always kind of like, uh, you know, I might come up with a song idea and send it to the group and then we'd all get together, you know, later on and, and kind of um, put it all together. And I think that was definitely how the start of kind of the Rhapsody tapes came together was it was very much a, I'd written some songs, some ideas, and then, yeah, it was kind of a, the actual recording process was a very kind of short time frame to do it. We, we had, we'd written the songs, but it was kind of a bit of a whirlwind because we'd just been signed by Unified as well. But it was very much a, we kind of had a small window to record the album. I believe we had 28 days to, uh, or like just under a month to record and mix master. Like so the just enough time record. to get drugs out of your system, 28 days, that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Dale and I sat there for majority of the um of the recording period at my house in, in Melton, my parents' house in Melton, um, for almost the full month, like practically moved in. Um, yeah, like it was a very short time period, but in terms of writing it, it was very much started based on some, some demos were kind of existent. And then we slowly worked on them, um, you know, in separate ways and kind of pieced them together when we needed to kind of at the end. So big shout out to Melton there, the home of the Lazy Moe's restaurant yep. and the um, recording place for Rhapsody Tapes. Dale, what do you remember <laughs> about some of those early sessions? And Big M, let's not forget Big M. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think it's, it's important to note that like, coming off the back of Black Label, that was the first time that we had um, that writing outfit, um, which included Sam, um, and so that was sort of the, you know the first time that we were we we felt most cohesive as a writing kind of team, um, and that was sort of you know we had um, Luke and and Matt aka Running Touch and and like we had sort of had writing aspects coming in from a lot of angles other than you know Sam and myself and um, Black Label was our first chance to sort of really experiment with that and I feel like we really made a lot of ground with that EP. And so when it came to Rhapsody Tapes, like during that period, we had already been doing quite a bit of Australian touring off the back of Black Label. And so my kind of fondest memories of the early writing of tracks that appear on the Rhapsody Tapes were kind of just in like rehearsal jam sessions where we'd be sort of preparing for a tour or something and um, you know, Matt would come in or Luke would come in with sort of an idea. I remember vividly the first time hearing kind of the intro idea to Thunderdome um, at, at a jam session and just thinking like that's like that does not need to change. Like that's going to be a really great song. And just like feeling those like really giddy kind of butterflies for the first time, I think really about like, well, you know, we're sort of we're thinking of putting together our first like full length record here. And I think it's going to be really special if the songs are going to sound like this. Mrs. Centipede was probably another one. That was one that came very early on where we're sort of up in uh, Matt Cop's uh, little apartment and he was living above a, you know, a train station, um, station? railroad and uh, Mentone station right near where we went to school at St. Bede's. And, um, you know, that, that song, if you, 
listeners go back and listen to Hitachi, very much inspired that song, the lyrics in that song, you know, the trains going by and the, and the glass and, and everything, him living in that apartment. But Mr. Centipede was sort of, you know, there was a bit of footage we threw in somewhere, someone will probably be able to find it, but, you know, we sort of on a whiteboard kind of writing ad-lib lyrics as we sort of had this idea of Mr. Centipede sort of being birthed just as we're all sitting in this room. And that was another moment where I went, wow, again, this, this sounds really special and I feel like we're onto something. And I think just between those two songs, um, it was enough to sort of get a sense of the mood and the direction that the album was going. And it, it just felt in our, in our heart of hearts, like really good. Two-part question, who is running Touch and what impact did he have on Rhapsody Tapes? So, yeah, so to, to clarify, Running Touch is Matt Cop, who used to be our um, one of our guitarists from, you know, the inception of the band uh, all the way through till uh, kind of in that black, black label period where, we, where he took a step back. Matt Henley came in to replace him as guitarist and, and he ventured off um, to do his, his, own, his own thing musically and he's been successful and killing it ever since and he's you know you could still look him up he's still releasing music today and going really strong as running touch uh and you know he sort of his style is is kind of more in the electro and house and kind of that sort of realm um which i think just adds so much more to the story the fact that he was this guy that was like had his foot in two very different worlds um especially especially I think the fact that he was, he did have that foot outside of the heavy music world was a really big advantage for us. And especially with the Rhapsody tapes, I think he he did play a crucial part with some of those tracks, which I think really helped set us apart and give Ocean Grove a sort of our own name and mm-hmm. identity was because like not only Matt, but I think all of us, as I mentioned earlier, from the outset, we were kind of outsiders. And so we played that to our advantage of knowing that, okay, we don't really need to pay attention to what everyone else in the scene or whatever is doing. Let's just kind of set on our own path and, and just do what feels good. And that's kind of just what eventuated. Was there yeah. anyone else that told you not to add the elements that Running Touch was eventually going to add to your band? I don't think so. I think we were, yeah, we've always had that mindset really of just doing what we want to do and and holding real firm on that. And even if, um, you know, even if the songs were a little, a little out there or, yeah, Running Touch had a strange idea that maybe, um, you know, wasn't traditionally right for for the genre we're in or the, or the scene we're in, we we're always just like, no, we're going to do it. You know, it's just... Yeah, I don't think anyone ever really would have had much luck if they even tried anyway to tell us what we could and couldn't do anyway. <laughs> Great answer. Before you signed with UNFD, were you aware of the labels that were interested in your band? Um, we, you know, we, we were, there was a couple of sort of other labels that had expressed interest and kind of had done a sort of, um, you know, meet up with us and, take us out to dinner and sort of try and charm us and that kind of thing. And uh, it all, it all kind of felt a little bit, um, I don't know, when you're at that age, you're kind of just going along with it because you're like, oh, this is something you see in a movie. Like, why not? Like, yeah, wine and dine me. Like, let's see where this sort of goes. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, we sort of, we just had to trust our instincts. And the, the thing that I think uh, set UNFD apart from, um, any of the other labels that was kind of approaching us was we got this sense that 
our um, creative like direction and kind of our DIY approach and need to sort of really oversee every little detail was going to be respected. And hats off to UNFD because it, it really has been. I don't think at any point um, in all these years have we truly felt like any art, any aspect of our art has been kind of like controlled as much as there might be a lot of people out there that just think that's the done thing. And, yep. you know, they're, they're, they're not wrong to think that because unfortunately there are a lot of bands that have been controlled in that way and it sucks to think. But we're very fortunate in the fact that, um, yeah, we, we sort of, we somehow get licensed to just get the weirder and wackier as sort of like the seal of approval that UNFD just give Ocean Grove time and time again. And, yeah, we're just super grateful. Can you give me an idea of the timeline from signing with UNFD and releasing Rhapsody Tapes? I don't think too much of it was actually um, in a state of um, even demoed, uh, demoed out because I know that we signed to, it kind of all happened in a really nice time period where we had played Unify for the first time. I believe you signed time. at Unify, is that correct? Yeah, we did. We signed in a little tent side stage. Um, uh, was it before we, I think it might've been after we played. Um, I got told it was before you played and that, that there were some scenes backstage which won't be repeated on this particular <laughs> podcast. But to sign at Unify with UNFD, can you remember how you were feeling at that time? I was very excited. Yeah, gosh. yeah it was the... It was a nice hot like summer's day, yep. just perfect. I remember it being perfect weather. We were all sun-kissed. Um, obviously, just so, so excited to, to play really kind of our first ever festival stage, like properly to be given that opportunity. And to double it up with, yeah, signing a record deal, it was kind of, it was very much one of those like dream come true moments. Um, there's no doubt about it. I think we were all just... Yeah, it was kind of just like this is this is what it's all about. Like this is the this is the ride, and I think that that day was um, couldn't couldn't have been better. I think yep. just it all it all summed up perfectly, as Sam said, and that really set us off. You know, that was sort of the first or second week, as it normally is, of January of twenty sixteen, and so I believe that um, you know any of the any of the touring and and all the other little bits and pieces that happened throughout that year, off the back of. Um, kind of lights on kind of lover we did like a australian headline tour when we released that single that was the first single that we released um when we joined unfd and yeah i i think a lot of those demos as i said were kind of just like random moments in time and it kind of was just like building up to this thing that really felt good and then i think it was around the august september mark was when we kind of, we got the, like the deadline when we were told that we kind of needed to get it all together. Yep. And that was when um, we, it was the first time, let's put it this way. I mean, when we were doing the, the EPs and everything, not, we never had anyone telling us when we had to deliver something. So it was the first time that we actually ever had a delivery deadline. Like that was a new concept to mm. us. So we really had to like kind of pull our heads in and go, oh, well, we can't just like piss fart around. Just it's not a hobby anymore. It's, it's I guess it hobby. suddenly, yeah, it suddenly became real life for you. We were kind of like hired, you know, yep. and, and so we had a job to do and and we got into Sam's house, which we had recorded Black Label at and we're like, okay, we've done this before. Like, let's just, it's just a few more tracks. Like we can do this. And yeah, we spent that, that next 28 days in, in kind of September time just nutting it out. And I don't think I barely even left. I, I just, yeah. you know, pack, packed a bag and we, we, we ate out of his pantry like <laughs> 
abusing the power bill and the aircon yeah. bill and, and what have you, like his parents put up with a lot and um, and we just got it done and I just think we, we, we kind of recorded it on like a video, like just on the, the video cam on the computer as we were going and you can just see like the slow decline of our like yep. just mental and like just our spirit was just so low by the end of it because we were just so burnt. But um, it was awesome. You know, we, I think we had to like get through that process to realise okay, maybe we can go about this a bit of a smarter way next time, but it made it what it was. So you can't really take that back. Do you remember where you were upon its release? We're on tour. We're on tour with, um, with the Amity Affliction. And that, that in itself was our, one of our first big support tours as well, if I remember correctly. Like for us to be kind of on that Amity tour, it was a big regional tour, um, really, really long tour, heaps of dates i think it went for like span across a month um or a little a little bit longer but so did we you get a geelong. moment to celebrate it i guess we did we were in geelong yeah. it came out the day we played i think geelong arena or um was that one of those... okay ocean grove only 20 what is it 20 minutes from geelong was that a coincidence yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was yeah i mean look Nothing's a coincidence. Um, yeah, divine intervention that we just so happened to be, yeah, 20 minutes from the town at birth, our band name. But it was, um, yeah, it kind of just felt really meant to be playing playing that arena and getting to, yeah, come off stage and um, pop a bottle of champagne and officially have the release day there and then. Are you looking yeah. through the publications, looking for reviews on your album? Oh, it's incredible. It was honestly incredible for us from, for me, for me in particular, like the thing that I think is important to note is that it was our first time ever putting out an album and putting out something with such weight compared to, you know, it's kind of the thing to do when you're a local band or a smaller band is, you know, you put out a few EPs and you play some shows and you work your way up, but this was our first serious body of work. And there was, you know, we just signed to a label. Things are looking, you know, re- on the up, we're on the come up. And I, I remember it just being everywhere. You know, we had so much publication around the time. We had so many things we, that were just slowly tip, being ticked off a list of like, wow, this is happening. This person's reached out. You know, it's being featured here. That I think, yeah, it's important to note that as well, like the the innocence of of us as, as uh, musicians at that time, you know, it's, it's like you are still a little kid in a, in a candy store when it comes to that, that youthfulness of like, we haven't experienced this before, you know, we've put out a few, a few albums now and we know how the, how it all goes and uh, the expectations, et cetera, et cetera. But for that one moment in time, it was the first time where it was like actual just innocence of like, wow, you know, this is happening. I can't believe, you know, you can, it's true. Like you can only release your, your debut album once, you know, one, one crack at it. The triple J feature album. Do you have any memories of that? Yeah. That I was just going to say, I was going to chime in and say like Herald Sun was just like a classic kind of little one of those moments where you're just like, ah, oh, that's, that's a bit of a pisser because you know, there might not be many other publications other than Herald Sun that your kind of parents can look at and be like, Oh, okay. Like you're in the Herald Sun. Like that's, you know, thumbs up. Like you've done it. Um, so that happened. That was one of those moments. Um, but yeah, the Triple J feature album was like, 
yeah, massive. Felt massive at the time because um, I think we we got the news as we were coming, like we were on a plane, and as we were coming down into, oh gosh, was Let's it say Tasmania? Um, and yeah, we were coming down, and as we got reception, we um, yeah, we got the news that it was going to be feature album, and we're all still strapped in, but just reaching over to one another and trying to like you know, hug one another and up in arms as the plane's coming down, and we're like, oh, so good, and just yeah, you hear one song of yours on the radio, and it's like chills you know the first time and that's kind of like a, a massive bucket list moment and so to, to to like hear your like whole album getting like served on a platter to people throughout the whole week it's not just oh that was so and so it's like you know they, they're giving a, an in-depth kind of description of it all and it's really getting beaten up and it's like yeah it's it's surreal so that was a massive moment talk about the subsequent tours so you're talking about the tour that you were on when it got released but um, I'm referencing here the In Hearts Wake tour and also a show with Limp Biscuit. Can you tell me about those? Uh, you, we can tell you about a tour with Limp Biscuit because that a was tour. one for the box. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, I think from the moment that Rhapsody came out, obviously we were very fortunate that it had quite a fair bit of success and um, it really cemented our spot as, a, as an up and coming band. Yeah. Helping the name sit nicely along some of the bigger bands that, had been around for a while. It was just a, a little bit of a fresh injection of, um, of, a, of a new band, but it was, it, um, it really helped us get some, some great tours. I think, I believe it kind of came at the same time where we had put out the record in, um, was it February or March? February. Dale? Yeah, February. Feb. By June or July of that year, we had got a Splendor in the Grass main stage appearance, which for a heavy band, like simply hadn't been done. Yeah, you f- I feel like you'd be a little out of place there. That'd be a hard one to play. Not that you wouldn't be able to do it, but as you said, it's not a usual spot for a band as heavy as yours. Yeah, and I think that was actually spoken about as well, um, about the fact that for a band from our scene, we were one of the first to get something like a, a Splendor. And then obviously the month prior, we went to Europe for the first time. Um, and did a, a European tour, um, sort of came back and, you know, did our, well, I think it was even before, it was in August of that year, we did our headline tour for the album, which was our first time headlining rooms like the Corner Hotel. And um, I think that was a real defining moment personally to see like our headline Corner Hotel show really felt like the beginning of the band being a serious force, I think, to a lot of people and seeing that performance and seeing us play with, you know, some form of production for the first time to a packed room with, you know, people who knew our songs. And yeah, it was, it was a fantastic time period, um, that sort of releasing, that year of, of releasing and, and touring the record. It's important for us to definitely acknowledge those bands that gave us um, some of those crucial opportunities uh, as we were coming up. And I think amongst others, In Hearts Wake and North Lane were sort of those two bands that um, throughout those, yeah, the sort of 2015 to 2018 like time period, we found ourselves sort of touring with those guys quite a bit. Um, and, that yeah, the, the, those tours were um, super, super fun. We bonded, um, you know, really well with them all. And, and we again, we took on that sort of little brother, younger pup kind of role on these tours and it felt really natural to us because we were sort of, um, you know, joke makers and we like to sort of, you know, muck around a bit and 
What about the biscuit? Biscuit for for me was um, such a large bucket list item for me. It was one of those things where we you always dream about touring with the big bands. And for me personally, uh, being such a huge new metal fan growing up, you know, I've and it definitely inspired um, one thing to note with its relevancy to the Rhapsody tapes is we were kind of the first band to bring back that new metal sound in a time period before anyone else had done it. Um, it's slowly making its way through again. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's making its way it's back. And, um, and that's, you know, I hold, I hold something significant with that. I think part of the reason why Rhapsody Tapes as an album for a lot of people holds some value is based on it was a sound that people hadn't heard before. Yep. And it was purely, it was, we were the kind of first ones to bring that sort of new metal tinged music back into a scene that was kind of filled with a lot of other sounds. Um, but listening to, you know, doing this sort of sound and getting the the tick to, t- to tour with a Limp Biscuit is something I'll remember forever. Um, that's, that's sort of one thing that I'll hold personally being like, yeah, I toured with Limp Biscuit, you know, yeah, it doesn't really get bigger for me. Um, you know, maybe a, maybe a corn tour, but we'll see. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll start with Sam and we'll go to Dale, your favorite moment on the album. And then one thing you would like the listener to know before they go and listen to Rhapsody Tapes again. Jeez, this is a tough one. I've got a lot of favorite moments off this record. I think simply being it's the first album I'd ever written. And a lot of, it was a big step in maturity for myself as a songwriter, quite simply I had a lot of help from the other guys to mature as a songwriter with this record in terms of someone like um, Dale, Luke, the uh, the old frontman, and, and Matt running touch really kind of pushed me to be a, a better songwriter in this um, on this record. But I think one thing for me that I'll always love is a song called The Wrong Way. And The Wrong Way will forever be my sort of there's a moment when it hits the bridge right right at the end of the song where it just feels like to me it's such a beautiful heartfelt moment of like a timestamp of everything that we had achieved in that time period when I listen back and it just hits something a little feelsy within me that when I hear that song in that part kind of the last minute or so of the song it just triggers uh, as if I'd written it now based on everything we'd experienced um you know, over over the last few years. It's just a beautiful moment I love listening to. Dale, a favourite moment on the album and something you'd like the listener to know about it? Yeah, well, Sammy, you stole that one right out of me, out of me gloves. <laughs> but, sorry, um, sorry. That's sorry. all right, mate. No, if, if, if it wasn't Wrong Way, which is definitely, you know, one of my favourite, yeah, moments on that record for sure as, as, as a moment where I got to really even experiment with my own voice and really seeing where I could take it and, um and and the message that's behind that song which i'll get to in a second but i think um you know when i think of a song that really encapsulates my memories of that time and and that record um i think a song like thunderdome does like sum up for me um you know all the shows that we played i feel like that that was always a song that you could kind of count on the crowd like always just singing along in unison it was just it just had the, the right energy about it and you know, that, that was definitely, a, as I said earlier, that one of those moments when I first heard it, it's just I just knew how special it was going to be and I'm so glad that um, we're able to, yeah, give it such a, a, a legacy as, as it has. And um, I think overall, like, 
this this record was the first time where we stepped away from Black Label's very much a teen angst, you know, dealt with some pretty heavy, dark topics that we kind of had to get out of our system. It was quite cathartic. And and so the Rhapsody tapes, for the first time, we could kind of start exploring these sort of more positive themes and and kind of, you know, the, it sums it up in the album title, like the Rhapsody tapes. Like it was sort of, it was meant to be this collection of songs that were inspiring and sort of helped, helped to try and kind of make people soar, even though a lot of people would say that it's still quite a dark record and I would agree with them. There's still that sort of that, those tinges were carried on from Black Label. But I think for the most part, your moments like The Wrong Way and, and Mrs. Centipede and, um, and these boys like fires and, and the energy of, you know, a song like Beers and um, From Delight and just sort of all these different energies that were sort of put together seemed random apart, but together it kind of embodied this energy that represented being experimental. It represented embracing individual individuality and you know, that, that was kind of what we started, wanted to stand for, and I think it embodied that perfectly. I'm with Sam and I'm with Dale from Ocean Grove. On this podcast, we've been dissecting and unpacking the stories and the messages behind their album, Rhapsody Tapes. Sam, Dale, thank you for joining me on UNFD, the official podcast. Thanks, Dale. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for joining me here on UNFD, the official podcast. And to everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. As usual, this episode was written by Matt Doria and produced by Abby Lou Key. I'm going to hop away from the mic, but stay tuned for our next episode in a few weeks' time alongside the next installment in UNFD's 10th anniversary vinyl series. If you reckon you can guess what's coming up next, feel free to hit us up on the socials. We certainly welcome all of your wild conspiracy theories. For now, of course, you can grab a copy of this rousing new pressing of the Rhapsody Tapes from 2400 or unfdstore.com, as well as some wickedly groovy Ocean Grove merchandise. Take care, stay safe, and mosh on. Info.